2. There's a lot of passages we could look at on Easter Sunday morning. We could, of course, turn to one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection. At the end of one of the gospels, we could turn to 1 Corinthians 15. That's a classic chapter and text on on the resurrection. But John chapter 2 isn't one of your typical Easter Sunday morning texts, but it is directly related to the topic at hand. And what got me thinking about this particular topic is, uh, is our adult Sunday school class that Dr. Michael's leading us through uh, the book of James. And so last week in Sunday school, we were talking about being angry, but not sinning. And so one of the places our minds immediately go to when we hear that is to Jesus cleansing the temple, right? Because here was Jesus angry. But of course, we know that in his anger, he did not sin. And we love this passage of him cleansing the temple because we look at it, we're trying to figure out, hmm, how can I be angry like that without sinning? Because quite frankly, that would come in handy a lot of times, right? To be able to flip some tables over, to be able to tell some folks to get out, it, it might could be useful. But what we might not remember about that passage is how Jesus ties that passage, that action in the temple, directly to his resurrection from the dead. He was upset about what was going on in his father's house and his mind immediately goes to his resurrection from the dead and I want us to see what that connection is this morning so stand if you're able for the reading of God's word John chapter 2 verses 13 through 22 the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture And the word that Jesus had spoken. May we believe this inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word of God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, by your grace, would you make us like the disciples that day? That when Jesus was raised from the dead, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so by your grace, make us like them. Help us. Help us be ready to receive the own cleansing 
that Jesus might bring to our lives the, our own destruction that we might need and that he might bring in his grace and in his power. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. When Jesus entered the temple, what he found made him quite angry. There's an outline in your worship folder that will help you follow along. First, what he found. Second, what he should have found. And three, what he had to do as a result. First, what he found. What he found in the temple that day was what worship had become. What it had been diminished to. He entered the temple, his father's house, and it felt that day more like a carnival. More like a a flea market than a place of worship. Noisy, smelly animals, loud vendors, enticing the worshipers to buy their animals, to use their currency exchange. Best rates in town. Buy one, get one free. Limited time only. The Son of God came into the temple, that that temple, that place of worship. Worship that God had so painstakingly laid out the details of, right? We've been reading through some of that in our Trinity Reading Together plan, right? All of the excruciating detail at times. He cared. This was of great concern to him. His own glory. Our worship of him. All these details that have been so spelled out have been replaced, forgotten, crowded out. The temple has become a marketplace. Now, how did this happen? Why did this happen? It's basically a mixture of greed and convenience. See, selling animals and exchanging money, that's not the problem. Those were both necessary services, necessary things that had to take place. It's not like those things themselves were bad. Pilgrims coming to the temple for worship needed to make sacrifices. If they were traveling 100 miles or more, it's not really practical to drag an animal that far. So they needed to purchase one once they got closer to Jerusalem. And for many, many years... Folks had been selling animals and exchanging currency because the temple tax needed to be paid in the local currency. And so from wherever they're coming, with whatever money they have, they needed to change it out. And for years, that had happened across the way from the temple, across the Kidron Valley, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. That's where it had happened. But as time went on, folks doing business had a good entrepreneurial spirit about them. I said, you know what? We've not really tapped into the potential here. There's more we could be doing. There's more we could be getting from this. And so, of course, one of the most important rules of business is location, location, location. So one guy moves a little closer to the temple, and he gets outdone by the next guy. 
who's outdone by the next guy. And before you know it, they're in the temple doing this. And how very convenient for the worshipers. How very convenient. They hardly have to lift a finger. No need to be inconvenienced. Let's make it as easy as possible to check off these boxes, right? Travel to Jerusalem. Check. Exchange the money. Check. Buy the animals. Check. Kill the animals. Check. Get on to more important things in life. Check and double check. Nothing about this whole setup brings glory to the Father. And Jesus comes into the temple that day jealous. Jealous for the Father's glory. Not jealous of the Father's glory. Jealous for it. The Son longs to bring glory to the Father. And He comes in that day and He sees that the Father's glory has been crowded out. And He's consumed with anger. To the point, he's so angry, in fact, that this is one of the rare instances where the disciples do connect a few little dots here. Right? He is so angry, you see there in verse 17, that they see his anger and they say, hmm, this reminds me of something I've read somewhere. Right? And, and so it's, it's Psalm 69 that, that is quoted there. And it's about David being consumed because he has so much zeal. For his father's house. And something that probably only made Jesus' anger worse. It's bad enough that these worshipers weren't giving God the glory he deserved. But they were actually hindering some folks who did want to come and worship and bring glory to God. Right? It's bad enough they weren't doing, but in the process, they were keeping others from doing it. The, the part of the temple where this was taking place, the outmost court, was the court of the Gentiles. It's where non-Jews could come and worship if they came to believe in the God of Israel, which many did. But not being Jews, they couldn't go into that inner court They had to stay out on the fringes, but still they could come there and worship until, that is, their worship space was annexed, taken over for a flea market. And so understandably, because of what Jesus found, he was furious, and he acts on that anger. You see in verse 15, he makes a whip. And you think, gosh, Jesus, that's a little violent. It's not exactly gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is it? This is scary Jesus. Is he trying to hurt people? Probably not. It says he made the whip of cords. Bible scholars think that those cords are probably just rushes, like uh, long grasses. I think those ornamental grasses you sometimes see at the end of people's driveways and things like that. So he made a a whip out of a bunch of grass. It's a rather wimpy 
whip. But rather than lessen the impact of what he's doing, I think that really increases it. Right? He made this wimpy little whip out of grass, but the people cut out. Right? They could have just pointed and laughed. What a, what a puny little wimp whip you made. But instead, somehow they sensed the power. And they sensed the authority. And they knew that they better do what this man was saying. He drove them out. He drove the animals out. He flipped over their tables. I want to be angry like that <laughs> and get away with it. I guess I got some issues, right? But Jesus didn't have, have any issues. Jesus didn't have any issues. This was his holy response to the situation. When you came into the temple and found what ought not to have been, so that, that should cause us to stop and think, right, what should he have found when he went in the temple that day? What would have not made him angry but made him rejoice? He should have found that day what worship should have looked like. Uh, looked like. Verse 13, the context here is the Passover, right? So it's one of the three high holy days and feasts where Jews were required, if at all possible, to get to the temple. Make the trek to Jerusalem. Lots of time and expense involved, but it was the Passover after all. It's the Passover that they are commemorating and celebrating. Well, what's the big deal about the Passover? It's commanded that you come. It's commanded that you remember. It's commanded that you celebrate and commemorate God's amazing and powerful and supernatural and unmerited deliverance of His people out of slavery in Egypt. God's people were without hope. There was no way out for them. The situation was bad and it was only getting worse. They had no ability to improve their situation for themselves. And so God, in His rich grace and mercy, came and rescued them. And then commanded them to remember that event. You need to remember it's for your own good, for your own welfare, for your own safety that you regularly remember that I'm a God who rescued you. Always keep it before you. Keep it on your hearts and on your minds. And when you remember, bring a sacrifice. Bring a sacrifice. You need to remember that a sacrifice is required. You need to remember. And when you bring that sacrifice, you're supposed to identify with it. You're supposed to see that animal there on the altar with its throat slit and the blood pouring out. You need to remember. You need to identify. This should be me. This is what I deserve because of my 
sin and rebellion because God is holy and I am not. This is what I deserve. How humbling this worship should have been for them, but also how joyous. How thankful that a provision has been made so that it's not me on the altar. That a substitute could take my place. See, God's people in worship were supposed to be remembering. They were supposed to be identifying with this substitute, thanking God for the provision of the substitute, the sacrifice to die in their place, but none of that was going on. Instead, things had been simplified, made quite easy, quick, convenient, trouble-free, in and out. What's the least I can do to still check this box that I came and worshipped so I can get on to whatever's next, right? Can I get in and out in 60 minutes, please? Because I got places to go and things to do. Worship was all out of whack. Worship for the glory of God had become Witham worship. You know what Witham is? What's in it for me? Is that what you were wondering when you walked through the doors this morning? Wonder what I'll get out of this. Wonder if it's going to be worth my time. That's worship that's all out of whack. Can you imagine how utterly shocked the Jews must have been that day? For Jesus to suddenly show up for them to have all of their status quo literally turned upside down. I can't believe he did that. What gives him the right? He comes in like he owns the place. What Jesus found was worship that was not as it should have been. What he should have found is worship that remembered and celebrated God's unmerited, undeserved grace and mercy. And so what does Jesus have to do? Well, what they want him to do, verse 18, is give us a sign. Do something fancy to justify what you just did. Do some miracle that proves you've got the authority to do this. The right to do something so bold and so disruptive. And their request for this is so ironic. Because what he just did was the sign. And they missed it. What he just did was fulfillment of prophecy. Malachi 3 talks about the Lord suddenly appearing in the temple. The Jews, the religious leaders might not have even noticed that Jesus slipped in. Until... (laughs) whip comes out and he starts flipping tables over. He appeared suddenly. Zechariah 14, I think it's 14, talks about the day where there will no longer be merchants 
in the house of the Lord. Prophesy then. They demand a sign. Show us a sign. Well, he just did and you missed it. And though they had just missed the huge one right in front of their eyes, Jesus is going to give them an even greater sign. One that he himself will have to perform. Though true to fashion, he's going to tell them about it in veiled language that they won't be able to understand. He says, destroy this temple. Now that is every bit as shocking as the table flipping. Tear it down, he says. Now, did he mean for them to actually start taking stone apart from stone? No. But he absolutely did mean that everything they were doing in that building at that moment had to go. Everything they thought they knew about religion and worship needed to get out of there. Tear it down. And you immediately see from their response, they don't get it. It took us 46 years to build this. And therein lies the problem. What they had reduced worship to, all that they could conceive about in their understanding of their religion and of their worship, is what they could do by themselves. And for themselves, it, it was their own human effort. It was, it was all about their own convenience, their self-reliance. So Easter brings a lot of folks back to church. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Perhaps some folks come on Easter and Christmas and things like that. Perhaps some come check off a box a sense of religious duty right you, you might be here this morning and, and every morning and that's your reason if you were honest and I don't say that to say shame on you right I don't say that wagging my finger but I do say that to you this morning that if you're here to check off a box, tear that down. That needs to be destroyed. That table needs flipping over big time. Because I've got to tell you, if you're here to check off a box, Jesus is not impressed. You haven't won any points or any favors. He's not impressed with that. In fact, he's angry. He's angry. He wants to flip those tables over in your life because Christianity is not about what you can do for yourself. It's not even about what you can do for Jesus. He doesn't need you to do anything for him. It's about what he alone can do you. It's not based on human strength or ability. It is supernatural. You couldn't conjure it up if you wanted to. And that's what the religious leaders didn't get. 
We had it all wrong, right? If I can check off these boxes, I'll be okay. And if I can check off even more boxes, I'll be even more okay. They even thought, once Jesus proved to be such a problem for them, they even thought that they could solve their own problem with their own efforts by killing Jesus. Surely if we just kill him and get him out of the picture, we'll be okay. We'll go back to our normal lives. We'll, all of our power and our prestige will still be in place. Undisturbed. And so the religious leaders said, all right, we got a problem on our hands with this Jesus, but we can fix that. How foolish. Short-sighted. <laughs> to think that this life is all there is. They had no clue. They had no clue what Jesus meant when he said, in three days I will raise it up. See, Jesus knew that the problem was too great for them to fix on their own. And the bigger problem they had that they didn't even realize they had was much too big for them to fix on their own. Their worship didn't need a little tweaking. It needed tearing down. It needed destroying. And Jesus knew that any who would come to worship him would have to have their way paved for them. Paid for them. He knew that the temple of his own body had to be destroyed. It had to be torn down. He had to suffer in his body the punishment for us wanting to make it all about us. For us not giving to God the glory that he's due and trying to instead steal glory for ourselves. Oh, how the temple needed cleansing. How, in fact, it had to be destroyed. Now, think about the temple for just a moment. Before the temple, the stone structure, there was a, a temporary temple, the tabernacle. Both of those structures were devised to allow God's people, as it were, to return to the garden. To get back to the place to experience God's presence. And so, those both pointed to a greater reality. The tabernacle was not the point. The temple, grand though it was, elaborate, ornate, detail upon detail, not the point. Pointed to one who would come to allow us to experience, indeed, God's presence. But not in a building not in a tent, not in a structure, but it was God who came to be present with us. And the only way that would work was for the temple to be torn down and raised back up. And y'all, that's the beauty of the resurrection. 
God who took on flesh became like us so that we could know him paid the price in his flesh to make that relationship possible died for us and was raised again so that our enemies of sin and indeed death could be defeated forever so that we can enjoy him now and forever so that one day we'll be worshiping at his feet giving him the glory that he's due in a place that John tells us about in Revelation Revelation 21 He's describing everything about and all its grandeur, all its beauty. Oh, and guess what he says? There's no temple here. We don't need a temple anymore. Jesus is here with us. We're worshiping at his very feet. So just ask you this morning, for whatever reason you're here this morning, where does Jesus need to flip some tables? in your life and in your heart today, in mine? What has our worship become? If it's anything other than a humble, joyous celebration and remembrance of His rescue, of His substituting Himself for us so that we can enjoy God's presence again, if it's anything other than that, it needs to be torn down. Destroy it, even today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you indeed, on this Resurrection Sunday, bring the grace of destruction. Bring the grace of a whip. Bring the grace of angry table flipping. Bring it to bear in all of our hearts and in all of our lives. Because none of us worships you as we ought. O oh, Spirit of Christ, come in power, even in these moments destroy box checking off destroy whiffum worship and replace with it a thirst for your glory a hunger for your righteousness that only you can provide come in power we pray in Christ's name amen please stand